Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, But but also, we don't want to be your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to Rest. Good morning, Rest Church! I just want everybody to know I brought my name brand bottle of water this morning. Uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, uh, uh, Pastor Johan brought his Great Value brand and he was making fun of me and he didn't call me out just because I wasn't here, but um, yes, um, I love my bubbly water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, so, as you guys know, we've been going through the book of Romans, and uh, the last three weeks, we've kind of been in this place of looking at the wrath of God um, as we closed out uh, Romans chapter 1. And today, uh, what has seemingly taken us um, a, a few months, we are now finally arriving in Romans chapter 2, but... Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's let's give the Lord some praise for that. But as we as we've came kind of to this place, we saw Paul kind of do some some uppercuts, you know, just you know, right uh, to the folks who are in the Church of Rome and who are li- living wayward lives, who are who are um, calling themselves Christ followers, who are calling themselves Christians, but are living against the word of the truth. And so, calls, uh, Paul's calling them out as we've seen. And so, this morning, um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time doing some big fancy introduction. In fact, we're just going to dive right into the Word. So if you would open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And this morning, we're going to look at judgment from the peanut gallery, right? Um, uh, judgment from the peanut gallery. And, and this is all going to make sense. You're like, that title sounds like the dumbest title ever. Um, but as we walk through the scriptures, you're going to go, oh, totally, totally get where that's coming from. So Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge these things, who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Let's pray, church. Father, Lord, we come to you this morning, just as we just sang, with no offering fit for a king with no grand gesture, but for the most part, a sinful, 
selfish, and broken heart. God, we know that that we bring nothing to the equation, and yet you love us anyway. Yet you still came while we were far from you, yet while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, this morning as we approach your table, as we come to partake of the bread of life, may you bring to us nourishment, may you open our hearts, and may we hear the exhortation of your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so, so we're gonna jump right in. Verse number one, we see right off the bat, therefore. What does that mean? What does that mean? If you've been around us for the last few years, last few years, man, we, we, we've been going expositing verse by verse through multiple different books. And, and here, what we, what we say all the time, when we see this word in your personal Bible study, when you open the scriptures and you see the word therefore, it's essentially saying to you, hit pause, rewind, see what's going on. And Paul's saying to you, hey, in order for you to understand this next part of where we're going, you got to conceptualize what we have just wrestled with. And so uh, rather than me trying to unpack what was the last three weeks worth of messages, I- I'm just going to read verses 24 through 32 in chapter one so that we can conceptualize what is the therefore. So here we go. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I'm going to pause. This is where three weeks ago I talked about the exchange of the real Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of the New Testament for toy Jesus that lets me do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. So that's the great exchange that's happened here. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Pastor A.B. wrestled with this concept here that you can have it your way, but there's a better way that you can have it your way if you choose a wicked lifestyle that God will say, yes, you can have it your way because God is a gentleman allowing you to have that. And so here that exchange happens again. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They were full of of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, though they know God's word, though they know God's word, they've heard the truth of God. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, that the wage of sin is death. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is what Pastor Johan wrestled with last week, is that you have this group of folks who are not only worshiping themselves and doing all fits of unrighteousness, doing all kinds of sin, this great list of sins, but they're also celebrating having pride parades for those who do. 
In chapter 1, from verses 18 to 32, we see Paul laying out what is God's righteous judgment, for the most part, aimed at one particular group. Because what we've got to remember is the church in Rome is different than most of the other churches that Paul writes to. The church in Rome is this homogeny of different cultures. It's both Jewish and Roman. And so Paul, in chapter 1, is mainly writing to a Gentile audience. But in chapter 2, we see Paul's about to flip the script and directly call out the, Gen- I mean, the Jews. As Paul clearly lays out, the Gentiles not only practice dishonorable things against God's holy law, it's celebrated. As, a, as we heard Pastor A.B. and Johan discuss over the last three weeks of their wickedness, God gave them up to a debased mind. Meaning, God said, if this is what you want, have what you want. And as Johan said last week, God used their freedom as their very own prison. That was such a good line. You, you killed it. You killed it. But in an effort to leave no one out, because the Apostle Paul, man, he's like a, he's a stone-cold killer. Um, if you haven't read much of the Apostle Paul's uh, writings, he, he, he's uh, an equal opportunity offendist. Um, he, he's an equal opportunity person. And so in an effort to leave no one out, he comes calling for what particular group? Chapter 2 is focused on the religious Jews. A religious Jew would have heard what Paul talks about here in Romans 1, 18 through 32, and they would have been shouting, amen, yeah, yeah, I can't believe they lived their life that way. Yes, 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 yes. The Gentiles saw, I mean, the the Jews saw the Gentile way of life absolutely reprehensible because it was a clear violation of God's written law. They would have more than likely assumed that they themselves were exempt from Paul's condemnation here because they themselves were keeping the law in deed. They were keeping the law in their actions. And if we're being honest, like the first century Jew, many modern church-going folks hear Romans chapter 1, and I I heard you, so I'm going to call you out, all right? I heard you. I heard you when, when Pastor A.B. for the last two weeks preached, and I heard you when, when Johan preached, and certain sins, when they came up, everybody in the room was like, amen, yeah, yeah. You heard it, didn't you? You said it. We're just like the first century Jews, hearing the condemnation of specific sins such as homosexuality, drunkenness, murder, lying, so on and so forth. We say amen as if we are guiltless. We say amen. We, we mount up our mob with our pinchfork, with our, with our battering ram, and we're ready to storm the castle as if we are guiltless. And Paul knows this. Paul knows the group of folks who are the religious zealots inside of the faith community in the church in Rome. And he says, hold up, wait a second. Hold up. And Paul pours an ice cold bucket of water on their heads. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so there's a nuance here that we have to unpack, that we have to begin to pull out because you say, no, 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 I don't practice those things. That, that's not what I do indeed. That's not what my physical body does. I don't impart, I don't, I don't do those things that is in that list. Hold on though. What Paul is getting at here is that we are all guilty. We are all guilty. Paul is saying, do not celebrate at the sins that you yourself do not commit. Don't celebrate because you sin differently. Don't celebrate because you sin differently. In a master class in serving humble pie, Paul wants his listeners to understand his list in verses uh, 29 and 30. That, that big list that Johan talked about, the four, the 12, and the four, I think is how you, you split it up. <clears throat> he, he, he says, it's not about our actions. He's focusing on our attitudes. This list in, in, in 29 and 30, it's not about our actions, but it's about our attitudes. How many of you ever had a, needed an attitude check before? Right? Like I could play a Snickers commercial right now. Tim Keller put it this way. We are to look at our hearts before looking at our hands. We are to look at our hearts before we look at our hands. It's easy for us to judge based on actions alone, but it is God, church, who sees through the actions of man and peers into the heart. And so while we might appear on the outside righteous, while on the outside we might appear that we have it all together, if we are on the inside casting judgment, if we are on the inside nothing more than a Pharisee, then we are just as lost as the person practicing the act. So where is this standard coming from? Where, where is what Paul's talking about? How does it meet and practically? Where is it coming from? Pastor, I feel lost. Well, let me, let me make it really, really simple for you. The standard that, that is being applied here in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, actually comes from Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount in John, I mean, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. And th- this is the standard. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. If you have, an old, if you have a King James or a King Jimmy, as I call it, um, it's going to say who hates his brother. And you might, you might say, well, but pastor, I, I, I have anger and I don't hate the people. I don't want to see them die. But the truth is, is, is if you apply that standard, you say, well, I don't hate them. I'm not desiring for them to die. Most of our anger, if we're all being honest, is rooted and sprung forth out of a place of selfishness, isn't it? When we're angry at our spouse, when I'm angry at Molly at home, most of the time, almost all the time, because she's always right, amen? (laughs) Most of the time, it is because I myself want her to do something my way. I myself want her to obey my wishes, my commands. 
When I'm angry with my kids, it's not because they have violated the righteous law of God. It is because they have violated my opinion. And so if we, if we boil that down and we come back to 28 through 30, if we come back to that list, we'll see selfishness applies there in and of itself. So when we're angry with people because they are, 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 are violating our standard and not God's standard, that, my friend, is sin. I want you to take a second and think about that because as, I'll be honest with you, as, as I was writing this, I'm like, man, I'm a, I'm a wretched sinner. I am a wretched, filthy sinner because I find myself angry over the most ridiculously dumb things. If, if we're all being honest, if you've ever been in a relationship, I don't care if it's with your brother, sister, your mother, father, or your husband and wife, and especially your husband and wife, can, can we all just agree most of our fights are over dumb things? And so what's this a sign of? It's a sign and a symptom of our selfishness. For most of us, it's not too hard to get to the end of the day and say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. However, it's rarer for us to honestly be able to say, I've not been angry with anyone. I've not been angry with anyone. And as I said, the Bible, the Bible does give us a provision to be angry. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 is be angry and sin not. That is a righteous indignation. That is a righteous indignation that we see Jesus put on display for us in the temple as the tax collectors were sailing goods and the merchants were in the house of God. That is a righteous indignation. So there is a provision for that very thing from the scriptures. But here, Romans chapter 2, in the appliance of Jesus' standards, Paul is saying to the religious lawkeeper, guard your heart and mind your judgment because while you find yourself righteous in the earthly standard that you're living according to, according to the heavenly standard, when you cast judgment on people who sin differently than you, you are violating the heavenly law. I know that's a, that's, a, that's a lot to wrestle with. And, and I think Tim Keller does a great job of kind, of kind of making this clear for us to understand. And so I want to read you a quote. It won't be on the screen, but one part of it. It says, so Paul was challenged to us in Romans 2 verse 1. When you see someone acting in anger, murdering, for example, what do you do? It is, of course, right for us to judge all things, as 1 Corinthians 2.15 calls us. And, and in a sense of following God's verdict on what is right and wrong, if we don't, if we don't judge what is right and wrong according to God's holy standard, we become like the people in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, where it says we celebrate those who practice these unrighteous things. So it is right for us to judge what is right and wrong according to God's law. Do not miss that. We have to call black and white, black and white according to the scriptures. There is not 50 shades of gray in God's word. If we don't, we become like those folks. But to pass judgment, to pass judgment, if you'll throw up verse 1 for me. If to pass judgment, as we see here in verse 1, that it is wrong 
by accompanying it with a particular attitude. Basically saying, you are lost and I'm glad. Now I feel better about myself. In other words, to pass judgment is to believe that others are worthy of God's judgment while you are not. That others are worthy of God's judgment while you are not. Isn't it true that we're much harsher on other people than we are ourselves? Isn't it true that when we look in the mirror that we don't see ourselves or or, or we don't evaluate ourselves to the same standard that we evaluate the people in our lives to? Isn't it true that we allow ourselves to, to create these exemptions within the framework of our mind to make us feel better about how we acted? We find all kinds of excuses for our sin, do we not? We say things like, I responded that way because I was tired. Or I was provoked, they used something against me that I cared deeply about. I was provoked and that's the reason why I responded. Or or I've been like this, the way I responded was the lesser of two evils. We make these exemptions in our mind for why that we, we responded like we do, why we casted judgment in our mind, why we created animosity between our brother and sister in Christ, while being fast to notice and condemn it in others, without ever considering what burdens they themselves might be carrying. John Scott puts it this way, we work ourselves into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not so nearly serious when it is ours, rather than theirs. I want you to catch this because this statement is our main point for the day. Condemning others while excusing ourselves is what allows us to hang on to both our self-righteousness and our sin. Condemning others while excusing ourselves is what allows us to hang on to both our self-righteousness and our sin. Passing judgment in our mind makes us just as guilty as the one who committed the act. This is why Paul reminded the church in Galatia to be very careful at how they treated a brother or sister in sin. Check this out. Galatians chapter one, verse six. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. There's two different types of temptation that can occur here from what Paul's writing and getting at in the church in Galatia. One, sometimes as we go to try to rescue somebody, and who is embroiled in sin, we find ourselves caught and ensnared in that same sin because we don't come with the guards and the entrapments and the armament that we need to in order to pull and rescue them from the place that they're in. But second, the self-righteous Pharisee inside of us always wants to well up. It always wants to well up to where we begin to see ourselves as better than they because we aren't in the trap that they're presently in. Where we say, Uh, There's no way I would ever do that. There's no way I would ever treat my kids, my spouse, my job. There's no way I would ever do that. 
John Piper says on that particular statement, I will never say there is no way that I will fall to that vice. Because the moment that we speak that out into the ether, the moment that we begin to breathe that, is the moment that the enemy goes to work at trying to attack us in that very way. Because what happens is, is that says that your pride says you can't fall that way. And where there is pride, there's a chink in your armor. So be very careful at how that you go to restore your brother. This is why Paul's, what Paul's getting at. We must keep watch of our minds constantly and not fall into the trap of the Pharisee believing ourselves better because God's judgment is right. His, his standard is clear, concise, and holy. Therefore, we have to keep a watchful eye on ourselves. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Who's he talking about here? The judgment of God rightly falling? He's not talking about the folks in chapter 1. He's talking about the the folks who are self-righteous, who are judgmental in their mind. He's saying that the condemnation, the judgment of God will fall on those people here because God scrupulously is fair in his judgment he will use our own standards the judgment we have made on others the judgment that has came out of our mouth upon us ourselves the judgment that we cast will be the judgment by which we will be judged where does this come from Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 judge not that you be not judged For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you see it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The 20th century theologian Francis Schaeffer called this particular thing the invisible recorder. And and, and in his description of this illustration of the invisible recorder, it's as though unseen, there's a recorder around each of our necks. It records the things that we say to others about others, how they ought to live, Then at the last day, God will judge and he will take that tape recorder, that video recorder, he will take it off of our neck and he will begin to play it back and say, I will judge you according to the standard by which you judged the world. Church, how would you fare? I know for me, I would be found woefully inadequate. I would be found wanting. I would be found short of the measuring stick that I measure the world by because I myself am a hypocrite who does not follow the standard by which sometimes I declare life should be followed. Is there anybody else who would say the same? And that's exactly what Paul's getting at in these three verses. And as he comes to verse three, do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge and practice these, these things, and yet you do themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? He says, do you think that if this is the life, the paradigm that you're building, how that you view the world, that you will escape the righteous indignation of God? No, no. This is a, this is a, a, a gut punch. Right to the heart. 
I want you to check this out and listen very close. Bottom line from Paul. If the dominant response of our heart is judgment when people sin differently than us, then we are just like those from chapter 1. Lost. I'm going to say this again. If the dominant response of our heart is judgment when people sin differently than us, then we are just like the list in chapter 1. Lost. In this condition, we are devoid of the Holy Spirit. Our actions can be perfect, but in our minds, we have not been renewed by the Holy Spirit. We are just as dead as the day when we prayed the prayer. And Jesus points this out to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27 through 28. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like a whitewashed tomb which outwardly appears beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The typical response when we read these passages is this, church, and I know this, is that that's not me, pastor. I prayed the prayer and me and Jesus were all squared up. But you're not. If the love of Christ is not in your mind, meaning that you have an utter brokenness when you see people's life in ruin due to their sin, then you, my friend, are lost. See, that's the difference between judgment and a Christ-centered mind, is that when you see folks who are, who are doing things opposed to the will of God, opposed to the law of God, it's not that you cast judgment. You are sorrowful, you are remorseful, and you are broken because what you know is that their life is on the brink of hell. You don't celebrate the fact that God's judgment is coming on them. No, you're broken because you say, God, please, you're, you're begging. God, let their minds be opened. Let them hear the good news. Let them respond. Don't let them go to hell. So, so where is your heart when you see people sin differently than you? Is it broken? Is it broken? Or is it casting judgment? If all you have in your heart is anger and judgment when people sin differently, then you need to question the faith that you call yours because it is not found in the New Testament. Condemning others while excusing ourselves is what allows us to hang on to both our self-righteousness and our sin. I know far too many folks who, who, who confess Jesus as Lord, but their, their life is embroiled in anger and judgment. And, and you, don't, you don't find that from the New Testament. You don't, you don't find that from the New Testament. There's guys who, who, who I work with that some days I, I go into my office and I shut the door and I, I want to weep for the condition of their heart. I want to weep because, because they profess Christ, but they don't know the love of Christ. 
They profess Jesus, but they haven't experienced the depth of, of, of that love that, that he calls his disciples to engage in. We, we, we should be broken. Not just for our sin, but for the sin of others. And before we approach others to look at the speck in their eye, we deal vehemently with the sin that's in our lives. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will kill you. And that's the motto of our life. And so when we, when we are in all-out eradication and pursuit to kill our sin, it makes it so easy for us to go to others because we come with graciousness. We set that broken bone with graciousness because we ourselves know that we are broken and that we desperately need the good doctor. That is the call of the Holy Spirit. Even for the hardened Christ follower, to not take on the, the mental judgment, to not take back on that yoke of pharmaceutical mindset is a challenge. It is a battle daily because the flesh constantly wants to push forward the sin of others and diminish our own sin, right? That's the, the constant prevailing thing that we have to come to the cross and we have to crucify ourselves daily to fight against. And this is, this is the battle of the mind. This is the, this is the great battle that we, that we face every day. That we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principality and the things that are not seen. That's going on inside you because if you call yourself a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you are no longer just a, a bunch of carbon put together. You are a heavenly, eternal being and you are at war, at war with the flesh that you're carrying. This bag of bone, this, this vagabond. And, 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 and this battle of our mind, essentially what we're saying here is that we are commanded to love God with not only our actions, but our mind. That means that we yield everything, everything to him, the deepest recesses, dark places of your mind to him. Because this is the first and greatest command is to yield our mind to him. Matthew 22, verse 37 they come to him, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they ask Jesus, what can you sum up the law of the prophets? And he says, I'll give you this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. The war begins there. That's where it begins. It's in our minds. In order to love the Lord completely, we have to release control of our perspective and submit to His. We have to submit to His will, submit to His word. We have to do whatever we need to do to have the renewal of our mind. Where do I pull that from? Romans chapter 2, verse 12. I mean, verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is what Paul says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we do that? We have to be transformed. We have to have a new mind. A new mind. And, and, and this word here, transform, th- this word is where we get the word in our English from the transliteration to create metamorphosis. Like a, pa- a caterpillar going into a cocoon and hanging out there for a little bit. And coming out as a beautiful butterfly, it comes out altogether almost a completely new and different creature. That's what Paul's getting at here. As he's saying that when we cross over from death to life, when we surrender our life to Jesus Christ and we confirm him as the Lord of our life, when we submit authority authority to him, we are transformed, not just, not, 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 not in some special, crazy, little, weird way, but in our mind. That it gives us a new perspective. And, and the first place that that new perspective comes is how we see ourselves. That we see ourselves for the broken person that we are. That our proclivity, like a dog, is to return to its vomit. That we return to our sin. And having the renewal of the mind means that every day we create the conscious decision to submit at the foot of the cross. As Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, to be crucified with Christ, that it would no longer be us who lives, but it would be Christ who lives in us. That's what Paul is getting at here in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As if the heart and the condition of the response of people who sin differently than us is to be broken for them and to seek God on their behalf. To have a metamorphosis, to have a renewed mind is to see and think about the world completely different. What does that mean practically? That we would keep coming back to the well of Jesus, seeking his face, that we would constantly put to death our exceptions to the judgment of God, that we would stop making exceptions for the things in our hearts, in our minds that are opposed to his word and to his will. And then on top of that, that we would be praying and asking God to give us a heart and mind that we would see his people the way that he sees them. When was the last time you got on your knees and said, God, give me a a heart for the lost the way you do? When was the last time you prayed, dear God, give me a heart for those who are addicted to drugs and alcohol the way that you do? When was the last time as you cast condemnation at the homosexual community, the LGBT community, that you said, God, give me a heart that sees them the way that you do? for many in the church. I fear they teeter on the brink of hell because while they prayed a prayer, 
They never submitted authority of their mind to Jesus. I have to tell you this. Praying a prayer without making Jesus Lord is just mumbling humbo jumbo. It doesn't get you into heaven. It, it, it doesn't get you into heaven. The scriptures say that if we would confess with our mouths what? That Jesus is Lord. To submit to the lordship of Jesus means that we give him the deepest annals of our mind, the places we don't want him to go. And after following Christ and serving him in ministry now for over 20 years, there are still places that when I say that in my mind, I go, I don't want God there sometimes. Because he's still working on me. He's still working on me. But I want his lordship greater than I want my control. Because what I know, as A.B. has said to us for multiple weeks in a, in a row, is that God will let you have it your way, but there is a better way. The question is, have you submitted lordship to Jesus in your mind? You might be living perfect. You might be living like, like a righteous Pharisee. But the truth is, as Jesus said to those Pharisees, they're nothing more than a whitewashed tomb. They're, they look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of dead bones. Are you full of dead bones? Or inside of you, is there life? Is the Holy Spirit vibrant? Is he moving the ethos of you and your family? Is he the prevailing thought of everything that you do? Do you submit to him? Or are you submitting in your mind to your own authority? Authority. 